our series. It's been a, a couple week hiatus, but we're going to continue our series. Oh, children, you all are dismissed for Children's Church. Sorry about that. Aaron, you go keep them in line, okay? Keep them in line. All right, children are dismissed. So the series, we, we've missed a couple weeks, but we're talking about a series on Let My People Go. We're talking about what ministry can look like, what it should look like, what it probably looks like. And, and it's based on a, a certain premise that you may not have ascribed to yet. And that premise is that every single one of you has a ministry. Every single one of you has been creatively put together for a purpose. And you are the only one who can fulfill that purpose. God did not wire me the same way he wired you. He didn't give you the same level of patience he gave me. He didn't give you persistence like he gave me. He didn't give you a work ethic. Well, he didn't give me that either. But... (laughs) But anyway, the fact is, he wired you differently because you're a different person. You are to meet a different need than I am. Now, I know that you all look at me and you think, well, you're the pastor. And we know why you're the pastor. Because you're the most holy person available. Right? No. No. God called me to be a pastor because I was already sinless and and was on track to live a perfect life. And I had complete and total humility, and he thought, I can use this guy, right? No, no, that's not why he picked me. And I I struggle with this. I asked this question for years until I finally understood the answer. He kept telling me the same thing over and over. The reason he called me to be a pastor is because I was willing. That's it. There were obstacles behind that. There was an alcoholism that that was filtering the way I heard God talk and the way I responded to God. That alcoholism was convincing me daily that I was worthless, had nothing to offer. There's no way God could use me. And finally, when he wore me down and got me down to nothing, he said, now, are you still going to use this as an excuse or are you going to follow me? And I said, all right, if you can clean this mess up, I will follow you. So the willingness is what made me uh, workable. The, the willingness to go is why he called me. And so I, I'm just curious as to what is he calling you to? When is he calling you to start this? And how is he going to equip you? And when is he going to send you? These are all very important parts. So we've talked about various parts of this ministry model. We talked about the fact that it usually starts with an oppressed people, a people group who are in misery, a people who are overwhelmed in grief and sorrow and brokenness, and they've lost their way and they don't know what to do. It could be teenagers, it could be children, seniors, it could be uh, veterans, it could be uh, prisoners, it could be people in nursing homes, it could be people in a church setting like this, or people in a community who don't even know that God exists. But whatever it is, it starts with an oppressed people who are maybe maybe not verbally, but maybe in their spirit, they're groaning that God, if there is a God, that God would send someone into their life to alleviate their situation, alleviate their pain and their suffering. It starts with an oppressed people. And when God hears his people crying out and groaning for deliverance, then God acts upon that. He moves upon that. And he's already raised up the people. 
He just hasn't necessarily called them into the situation yet, into their ministry yet. He has to, to, to raise you up to a certain level, give you the experiences and the education you need, and then when it's time is perfect, he calls you by name and he invites you into this ministry. He doesn't force you. He invites you. And then he whispers in your ear, and remember, he's talking to you by name in a spirit that only you can understand, and he says to you, I want you to go to these people and set them free from the bondage they're in. And if you're like me, you're probably going to spend a couple years or maybe five years, and you're going to refute it, you're going to disagree with it, you're going to convince God he's wrong, but I'm telling you, he always wins. And in the end, he's going to, to just keep waiting and waiting until you give in and say, all right, I'm in. And then God will begin the process of equipping you for ministry and developing you prior to him sending you. It's interesting. You read Paul. He went into to training before he was started his ministry. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights, went into the desert for training before his ministry. John the Baptist went into the desert for training. Elijah, into the desert for training. Moses, into the desert for training. Once he has called you, uh, he, he starts equipping you, and then he's going to send you. All of this is background information for getting into this particular chapter. Because there's also some things you need to understand about ministry. It's not going to be easy. Now this is for me as much as it is for you. But there's some simple truths I found in chapter 5 that speak volumes to me. And I hope that it connects with you. And understand that your ministry may not be pastoral or missionary type. It may not be some high profile spiritual leadership uh, calling. You may be called to be a nurse in a particular setting. You may be called to be a, a school teacher in a private school. You may be called to be a secretary for a doctor's office. It doesn't matter. But if you see it as a calling and a ministry, then it probably is. And so for all of us, wherever he, God sends us, whatever he implores us to do, uh, this is going to be apropos for us. And so let's look at this chapter, and I'm trying not to get off on too many uh, tangents and chase too many wild rabbits, because I don't want to be here an hour and a half, but I could. And if you encourage me, I might be. But in chapter 5, it says that afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Now, here's the background. Chapter 4 really serves as a good background to this. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, we find that God is calling Moses and he's trying to convince him, yes, you are the solution to their problem. I've had my hands on you from birth. I have been guiding your steps. You are the answer to their problem. I want you to go and to alleviate their suffering and to lead them out of bondage. And so he goes through the series of events of convincing Moses, you know, uh, put your hand in your cloak, pull it out, it has leprosy. Put your hand back in the cloak, pull it out, it's made whole. Throw your staff on the ground, it turns into a snake, you know, uh, turn water into blood, whatever it is. God is convincing Moses, I am with you, which he says in, in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you. We find later it says, um, see if I, I, I had these written down on my desk, but I didn't bring it. Um, anyway, there's another place where, where he says, I'm not only with you, but I'm going to speak through you. 
I'm already going ahead of you. I'm doing this, okay, for you. And so here's the point. Moses and Aaron should be highly motivated at this point, ready to start their ministry. Like every pastor at a new church, you know, they're excited, can't wait, ready to tear the world apart and proclaim Jesus, and, and we're going to have a great ministry. And then, you know, after two or three years, they're all beat up, ready to quit, right? But on the first day, they're excited and they're ready to fight. They're ready to go against whoever stands in their way. And I see this being Moses and Aaron as they come to Pharaoh. They're like, dude, we got God on our side. He's with us. He's going to give us the words to speak. He's already working in Pharaoh. This is going to be a piece of cake. This is going to be a great day, a great victory for the Israelite people. So they go to Pharaoh and they say to him, let my people go, just as God told him, right? And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Major problem, right? So all of a sudden, we start our ministry on day one. We're excited. We're, we're full of the Spirit. We're ready to conquer the world. And immediately, the, the wind is taken out of our sails, and we collapse. What just happened here? The first principle that we need to understand is regardless what your ministry is, regardless of where your ministry setting may be, there will be hard-hearted people standing in your way. There always is going to be, there will always be one, if not another. And when that one moves out of the way, there may be another. But it's not going to be easy for you. You're not going to go to church on your first day and give an altar call and everybody leave their seats. It's not going to happen. You're not going to go into a homeless shelter and say, I'm here to alleviate your suffering. And all of a sudden, they all find housing. It's not going to happen. There's always going to be at least one hard-hearted person that stands in the way. Now, we we unfold this a little bit, and and this is interesting to me. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now, remember that when Moses was put in the Longerberger basket and shipped down the Nile River, that there was a Pharaoh in place who did not remember Joshua. I mean, sorry, Joseph. You find that back in chapter 1, I believe it is. (laughs) Again, I didn't write these down. Uh, But anyway, so yeah, it's in verse 8, chapter 1. A new king rose who did not know Joseph. But now we have a different situation. uh, That that particular Pharaoh has died in chapter 2, verse 23. We have a new Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, his problem is not that he's forgotten Joseph. His problem is, is he's forgotten God. But the real problem, if you look in the Hebrew, it's not that he's forgotten who God is. He knows who God is. But he doesn't know God. Think about it in these terms. Let's say, let's say uh, Eric is, is uh, uh, voted in to be our next president in this country. Um, he's not going to get that position without a working knowledge of our last 225, 30 years of history, right? He's going to know the Constitution and who framed it. He's going to know uh, who the states are, how the government works. He's going to know these things, right? Or you won't be in that position. Um, Pharaoh didn't come to be Pharaoh and not have an understanding of Egypt's history. 
He knows about the Israelites. He knows how they got there. He knows how they started and who Joseph was. And he knew that Joseph helped uh, get the, the people of Egypt to a particular plateau. And, and he knows the history they have with their God. Remember, Egypt is polytheistic. They have multiple gods. They embrace all kinds of gods. He knows who God is. But that doesn't mean he has a relationship with him. He doesn't have a a working knowledge in his own spirit as to who God is. He's never had a conversation with God. And so when he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? He's basically saying, I don't recognize your God. I don't respect your God. I'm not going to do what your God tells me to do because that ain't going to happen. I'm God here. So you see, here's the the solution to this, or here's the way we're supposed to see this. My problems, my battles, my fight as a believer is not with the devil. Your fight is not with the devil. God's fight is with the devil. The devil's fight is with God, not with you. He may attack you. He may afflict you. He may try to make your life miserable. But it's, it's a fight with God. He hates God, not you. His hatred of you is simply a byproduct of your relationship to the one he hates. But the battle is between God and him. In this particular situation, Pharaoh was not battling the Israelites. That was not his battle. His fight was not with Moses. That wasn't his concern. His fight was with God. I don't respect your God. I don't acknowledge your God. So don't be coming here and telling me I need to obey him. So here's the thing. And regardless what ministry setting you have, there's going to be people who are going to be hard-hearted and they're going to be defiant about this God. And you still are called to be faithful and to say to them, this is what the Lord told me to tell you and I'm just being faithful. Then you walk away and you let the Lord do his due diligence. Now, it's interesting. If you go back to, um, to uh, again, I didn't write these down. Um, he says, um, well, he says in chapter 3, he says in chapter 4, Pharaoh is not going to let my people go. I have hardened his heart. He is not going to let my people go. But your job is to be faithful. Go anyway. See, when people are obstinate, when people are hard-hearted, God isn't slapping himself in the head saying, "What what happened here? What went wrong? God knows ahead of time that they're hard-hearted. He knows ahead of time that it's going to be a problematic ministry. He knows ahead of time that you're going to have your struggles. So why does God do this? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons. He does it because he's developing you into a soldier, into a, to an agent of spiritual warfare. He's doing it because if it's easy, you're not going to do it with his help. He wants to equip you. He wants to be with you. He wants to do it through you so that he gets the glory, honor, and praise, not you. But you know, in the context, the immediate context of this chapter, he does it for the purpose of discipline. This was his method of disciplining Pharaoh. He's, it's like he's given Pharaoh one more chance to turn from his wickedness, knowing that he's not going to turn from his wickedness. 
but he's building a case against him. Judgment is coming against Pharaoh and all of Egypt for how they have been treating and mistreating his chosen people. They're going to be disciplined. God knew that he wasn't going to give in to this, but it was part of his plan. We're going to go on. I didn't want to have Eric read the whole chapter, but we're going to go on. Then in reply to this and rebuttal, they said to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or the sword. Interesting choice of words. Because as he continues to be resistant and defiant, this is going to be the judgment placed upon him. Ten plagues are going to, to just ravage the, the city and, and the, the nation of Egypt. And with the sword, it's going to be implying that he's going to be losing his firstborn son. These are the judgments placed upon him because of his mistreatment and his disrespect for the God of Israel. Now, one thing that I didn't know until I really started digging into the text this week. It's implicit in the scriptures, and you may miss it. Well, you'll probably miss it. I missed it for years. When, it, when they said in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and he is taking us, he wants us to go on a three-day journey into the desert to offer our sacrifices to the Lord. He never says, they never say, but we'll be back. In other words, they're, they're making it very well known up front. We're going to go three days journey into the desert to offer our sacrifices, but we're never coming back. Pharaoh seems to have a misunderstanding of this. He means, he seems to be implying, well, well, okay, well, after the three days, then you will come back. You're just going to go three days there, offer your sacrifice. You're going to be right back, right? And so that's why in chapter 12 it is uh, that he agrees to let them go. But then the very next day, he says, wait a minute, go get them, bring them back here. You cannot let them go because it just dawned on him. They're not coming back. I don't know if that's real important to this, but um, it's important to understanding of the scripture. In verse four, it says, but the king of Egypt and Moses and Aaron or said to Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are numerous. You are stopping them from working. He only cares about one thing. He wants production. He has learned that these people are mighty. They're hard workers. And they are very productive for his kingdom. You know, we were down in, uh, in New Orleans, and one of the things Steve said, I said, well, what has been the hardest thing you've faced here? Thinking that he would say, well, raising support, you know, or keeping support. But he actually says, the hardest part on me is losing staff people. And he said there was one month that he lost 10 staff people. And that's hard. I mean, that's losing your people who had been there for years. None of them were disgruntled. They all just happened to leave for different reasons at different times at the same month. And he said it left us devastated. People that he trusted, people he leaned on, people who knew what to do and how to do it and were dependable, reliable, and they're all gone now. And now he has to start from scratch. I can kind of see that fitting in here. Thousands and thousands of Israelites working so hard to build 
and to create and to serve in the fields and to take them out of the picture, what a devastation that would be for the people of Egypt. But you know, selfish people don't care about other people. They care about themselves. He wants to stay as the Pharaoh, right? He wants to stay as the preeminent kingdom in all the world. In verse 6, that same day Pharaoh gave the order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks and let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy people. That is why they are crying out, let my people go. Another principle that we have to understand in ministry is that once you start a ministry, you have to understand it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and that's why, you know, I've done this enough where I start, when I get to a church, I try to explain to them, this is what you can expect. A new pastor in a new church location, you can expect to lose up to 40% of your congregation. 40%. So, you know, if you're averaging 100, you know, it's 40 people you can count on losing in the first year or so of ministry. If you don't expect it, if you don't understand these dynamics, if you don't understand and, and expect that things are going to get worse first, then you're going to be very disappointed and very discouraged. It's kind of like weightlifting, you know, you get like me, a little, little pudgy, just a little overweight, and you go to the gym, and you're like, I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to start working hard. And you start pumping the iron, bless you. And you start working hard and, and doing the, you know, the treadmill stuff. And the next day, how do you feel? Great? You feel like you've lost 20 pounds, right? No, you can't even lift your hands over your shoulders to brush your teeth. You sit on the, on the holy throne, and you can't get back up. We've all been there. We know how it is. But it's going to get worse before it gets better, right? Ministry is the same way. You have to expect it's going to get harder. Uh, I didn't really understand that when I went to Peoria. I mean, I had an underst- a little understanding of that. But I didn't know to what extreme this could happen. You know, in the first three years, we lost 200 members of a church that only averaged 150. I've told you this before. It's just weird math. But we replaced them all with 200 more. But every time we would lose 25 or 30 people in a month, I'd have people ready to chop my head off. And I said, I'm sorry, this is to be expected. Because they're, not, they're, they're used to a particular type of leadership, a, tic, tip, a, a particular type of ministry. And this is different now. And so we have to let them go. We have to expect they're going to go. But let's trust that the Lord's going to replace them with people that want to serve. You know, I could t- explain to you for hours, you know, why that happened like it did. 200 people is a lot of people. It ended up being in eight years, we lost about 300 people. Um, I can explain that to you later, but the church average never went below 150. But at the same time, when those people left, our giving decreased bad. And there were several weeks where we couldn't pay our staff. And we just had to say, we just need you to trust us. Hang in there for a few more days. And we were always able to get it back. We never went more than a week without paying people. But it was a very difficult time. Very difficult. But we have to understand, things are going to get worse before they get better. But you just have to keep trusting God that it's going to get better. In this, in this situation, Moses, man, he really had it hard. 
the people turned against him. They complained against him. They hated him in some regards. And they were a thorn in his side to the day he died. But he kept faithful. If you go down a little bit further, and we'll skip down to, say, verse 14. Pharaoh called in the foreman, the Israelite foreman, and blamed them for the decrease input or output. The foreman go to, to Pharaoh and they basically say, how could you possibly blame us? We're the, we're the managers. Blame the people. They're the ones who aren't doing their job. They're the ones who are slacking off and not doing the work that they've been asked to do. We can't make them produce. They have to want to produce. We can guide them, teach them, train them, but we can't make them produce. But Pharaoh was holding them accountable, blaming them for their errors. It would be really kind of like blaming the elders and the deacons because the people in the pews aren't doing what the Lord's called them to do or calling them to be. But as a result, look what happens. The, the foreman's come out in verse 15, and they went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are giving no straw, yet you're told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. And Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are. You're lazy. And that is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. But then in verse 19, the Israelite foreman realized that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks. When they left, in verse 20, Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron. So they left Pharaoh, and they went looking for Moses and Aaron. Their leaders, their spiritual gurus, right? Their guides. They went looking for them, and when they found them, this is the conversation they had. May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The foremans were blaming the pastor because of the decrease in attendance and work ethic and attitude of the people. They blamed them and to some degree cursed them because you, the leaders, are responsible for our mistreatment at the hands of Pharaoh. What a mess. I'm surprised that uh, Moses didn't uh, turn in his resignation. You know, if you think about it, the people don't appreciate me. The leadership doesn't appreciate me. Pharaoh doesn't appreciate me. God promised me that he was going to be with me and he was going to give me the words to speak and that he was going to go with me and to do this work, that he's already begun the work, that God's come down to earth to do this ministry. And why is this so difficult? Why is this so problematic? Why, why is this so frustrating? And I can just hear God saying, because I want you to need me. I want to do this through you. I don't want you to be so full of yourself that you can do this without my help. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. I just need you to trust me. It says in 22, the Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? 
Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought terrible upon this people, or trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people. So, you know, this, this comes repentance time. This is, this is a time for all of us to repent. And repentance is the appropriate response. One, I repent that I haven't listened to your calling. I haven't agreed to it. I haven't answered the phone when you called me. The people are still crying out for help, but I have been dragging my feet because I'm afraid and because I really don't want to do it. So we repent of that. Secondly, we repent because we haven't fully trusted God that he will do what he said he's going to do, that he's going to go ahead of us, that he's going to equip us, that he's going to do the ministry through us, that he's going to change the hearts of the people, that he's going to get us out of bondage. And he hasn't done it yet. We have to trust him that he's still going to do what he promised he's going to do. Third, we need to repent because every time we come across somebody with a hard heart, we're ready to throw in the towel and just quit. Because this is too difficult. I didn't want it to be hard. I want it to be easy. And because it's not easy, I quit. We have to repent of that. We have to repent of the, repent of the fact That we ha- we've been uh, hard-hearted ourselves. We've been hard-hearted. People come and they say, this is what we need to do. And you're like, no, not going to do it. We say, this is where you need to go. And you're like, nope, not going to do it. We say, this is what you, how you need to respond. And you're like, nope, not going to do it. This is what, what would really be helpful to you and yours if you would do it. It would help you spiritually. And you're like, nope, not going to do it. We have to repent. And why do we have to repent? Because there are people around us crying, crying out for a deliverer because they can't do it any longer. They're just barely hanging on. Suicide rate is increasing all the time. People can't take it anymore. And the whole time they're crying out, we're sitting in front of the TV thinking, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go where you send me. We have to repent. I, I don't know what, what everybody else thought when you're down in New Orleans serving homeless people that live in a tent village under the overpass. And I'm out there handing out sandwiches and praying for people. And I'm thinking to myself, where are the local churches? Where are the people that live here? Why, why are they not down here doing ministry? On the Wednesday, there was a, a church vehicle, a, a, a group of people that came to serve. I know there's some there. There is some ministry. There are homeless shelters around there that they are doing a ministry. But where were the people from the local area? You go and you work on these homes and people come from their homes and they come to us and they say, we need to work at our house too. Could you possibly help us? And I'm thinking, where are the local people? Where are the local churches? And even the lady that we worked with, uh, Elaine, I always forget her name. Elaine said, I don't understand why our church won't do these things. Why doesn't our church, we have the ability, we have the resources, why doesn't our church go in and serve the people? Good question. It all starts with us individually. God has a ministry for you. He has been preparing you for this your whole life. And now it's time for him to call you to respond 
He's tired of hearing the cries of his people. He's like, you are the solution to the problem. Would you please stand up and go? It's the whole silence of the lambs saying. I'll explain that later. My purpose is not to beat you up and to pick on you. Like I said at the beginning, this is for me to understand with the hopes that you can benefit from it as well. Every one of you has something to offer. Every one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we first um, thank you for your persistence in pursuing us. We thank We thank you for the calling that you have placed upon our lives. We thank you for hearing the cries of the people and for having a willingness to alleviate their suffering. But now we repent that we haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't trusted you with all that we are and all that we have. We've taken you for granted. We have been oblivious to the cries for help because we've been too busy enjoying our own lives. And Lord, it's time that we repent and ask for your forgiveness. We are willing to go wherever you send me to send us. We're willing to do whatever you ask us to do, and we're willing to say whatever you call us to say. Help us to make that commitment to you today, regardless of where we're from, regardless of our church history, regardless of any other excuse we could possibly come up with. Help us to be willing. We pray this with total humility. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to stand and sing a hymn I've been trying to get you to learn in the last few weeks. Hopefully we have it on iTunes. Is it in there? But if you feel the need to come to the altar and pray, I would love to pray with you. If you uh, need somebody else, we have elders that could pray for you as well. Um, But we just want you to come. We want you to get things right with the Lord. the Lord of sea and sky, I have heard my people cry, all who dwell in dark and sin, my hand will save.
wants to help me destroy the Apple computer later, come, come join me. And let's pray, okay? Gracious Father, we thank you for just being you. And we pray that you'll continue your pursuit of our hearts, that you'll continue to remind us, Lord, that you don't call people who are perfect, but people who are willing. And let us be that willing people. In Christ we pray. Amen. You'll stay out of trouble. And you see it through every line 